Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Docker and I'm here with Jason Crawford. Jason is the founder of Roots of Progress, which is an organization dedicated to studying a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. Could you quickly summarize the history of progress on Earth for us? You know, the most pithy summary maybe comes from, I think it's uh, Luke uh, Mulehauser. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He said, basically, everything was terrible for a very long time, and then the Industrial Revolution happened. Slightly, you know, less pithy with a little more detail. Um, you know, I think the you can sort of divide human history um, high level into kind of three eras, um, there was the you know tribal hunter-gatherer era, which lasted some tens of thousands of years or hundreds of thousands, depending on how you count. And then there was the agricultural era, which uh, you know lasted another ten thousand years or so. And then for the last few hundred years, uh, we've been in the industrial era. And the number one thing I think, if you wanna if you wanna summarize it all down to just kind of like one concept or pattern, I think the most important thing to understand about progress is that it compounds and therefore it accelerates. Um, so if you map any, you know, various metrics of progress you might have, like GDP per capita or even just world GDP or, um, you know, any of other sort of various similar metrics um, like population or energy usage or whatever, and you map it on a semi-log plot, you know, where exponential curves become straight lines, it's not even a straight line. It bends upwards. So the curve of human progress is actually super exponential. That is, it grows greater than any exponential. It is, you know, potentially you could think of it like exponential growth, except that the exponent itself is increasing over time as uh, as progress uh, compounds on itself. Even the pace of progress itself, you know, gets gets faster, even on a on a relative or exponential basis. Is this the mainstream view in economics regarding economic growth? Uh, yeah, I would say if you asked, um, you know, growth economists, um, you know, Paul Romer or Chad Jones, for instance, would be, you know, very familiar with this pattern and would tell you. I mean, I, I partly in part, I'm getting it from them. So, so you mentioned that uh, that growth is accelerating, growth compounds upon itself. Um, what about these modes of growth? So you mentioned the agricultural era, perhaps the industrial era. Does it make sense to talk of an of another a mode of growth after that? Perhaps the computational era. I think it makes sense to uh, to to wonder about or predict or uh, you know think about such thing in the future. I don't think we're there yet, or perhaps we're right now at the transition point or in the transition phase between those. But I don't think we've seen enough of it yet to be able to say that we're you know we've that we're in it or that we've made the transition or or, or to know what it looks like. Yeah. What do we know about economic growth during the hunter-gatherer era or the agricultural era versus, versus now, for example? I mean, the farther... So in general, with history and with economic history, the farther back you go, the sketchier the data gets, and that happens very rapidly, right? So like, you know, if you try to go back before the 20th century, you hit just like, we don't have even very good like economic records. And if you try to go back... Before that, we don't even have good, you know, if you go back more than a few centuries, we don't even have good population records. And if you try to go back farther than that, if you don't go back more than 5,000 years, we don't even have written records of any kind. And now we're just into archaeology. And the farther you go back, the more the artifacts themselves have decayed. So any of these things, you know, you have to, anytime somebody's talking about data from the past, you have to take it with a grain of salt and understand there's a lot of inference and interpretation here. However, that said, you know, there are papers that attempt to present very rough estimates of population and even GDP going back, in some cases, 
like a million or two million years, you know, so back to our hominin ancestors um, who are who are not even Homo sapiens. And again, the high level pattern is sort of that. So the, you know, so one pattern is that like population growth, which in a sort of Malthusian regime where uh, you know living per capita living standards kind of never really increase, population growth and economic growth are more or less the same thing. the The high level pattern of population growth is roughly that population growth rates are proportional to population itself, right? So again, the 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 exponent um, on the on the exponential growth increases with population itself, right? Where the absolute amount of growth is proportional to the size, that is constant exponential growth. But if the rate of growth, the percentage increase is proportional to size, um, that actually fits a hyperbolic curve that goes infinite in finite time. So obviously that can't continue. And in fact, around 1960, that relationship between population size and population growth rate uh, broke. Uh, and and population growth rates leveled off, and in fact they're decreasing since about um, the late 1960s. So in a sense, economic growth is no longer dependent on population size. Oh, I don't think we can say that necessarily. There's a question of where does this where does economic growth come from? And so I mentioned Chad Jones earlier. So a lot of his work is essentially contending that uh, economic growth, so technological growth and advancement is uh, driven by essentially the amount of resources that we put into it. And in fact, that we have to, if we want to keep exponential growth going in technological advancement, that we have to put in exponentially more resources. In other words, we have to also have exponential growth in the amount of resources we're devoting to R&D. And that means not only money for equipment and everything, but also people. In the 20th century, we were able to sustain a pretty rapid exponential growth in R&D, in part because we were educating more people and we were bringing a greater portion of the population into R&D. But that obviously has limits within population itself. At a certain point, you know, um, if your population doesn't grow and you're trying to grow your uh, research workforce, eventually everybody in the world, 100% of the population is, you know, a PhD educated uh, scientist researching and trying to push the frontier forward, right? And then like, at that point, if your population isn't growing, if indeed your population is leveling off or shrinking, which is the best, you know, the UN sort of estimates of world population for the 21st century have it doing, you know, then then you might be in trouble for sustained growth. Um, unless, of course, you have some way of massively leveraging um, you know, human uh, R&D input, say, perhaps through AI. Yeah, and we're going to talk about la- that in depth later. But at first, let's get to your flywheel metaphor. You have the central metaphor you use to describe what you found out about progress. What do you mean by, by, fl- by flywheels in this context? Um, so, I mean, a flywheel is a metaphor for anything that has a lot of inertia, that uh, feeds on itself, where so I mean, like I said, with with progress, where um, sort of progress compounds, and the more of it we have made, the faster we can make it. I mean, it's a similar thing with a flywheel. The faster it's spinning, right, the, the easier it is to keep it spinning or get it going faster. A flywheel uh, has a lot of inertia, so it's very difficult to get going in the beginning. If you push on a flywheel, you know you can get it going very fast, but only through many many turns. In the beginning, it's very hard to turn, and then the faster it goes, the easier it is to turn, right? And eventually, it builds up, you know. And once it gets going, it's on un- it's unstoppable, or at least it's it's not stoppable immediately. It takes a long time for it to wind down. Uh, I use that metaphor for progress. It was very difficult to get progress going in the beginning. Why? Well, you know, think about uh, 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 you know, why did a hunter gatherer 
tribe not you know why did most of them for thousands and tens of thousands of years not invent agriculture or you know smelting of metal or you know any of a number of other of ancient technologies well I mean, they didn't have a lot of surplus, and you know, for the same uh, by the same token, you might ask, why didn't folks in the Middle Ages, you know, in the in the early Middle Ages, why didn't they invent the plow for the, you know, or even a, or the or the spinning wheel for the longest time, right? And even then, once we had those things, why didn't they mechanize like we did later in the Industrial Revolution? Well, at any given point, you can sort of say, first off, there wasn't a lot of surplus wealth to put into R and D, whether that means funding a, an individual to do it full time, or even maybe somebody who has like spare time to tinker and invent, right? There wasn't a lot of base technology to build stuff with. Um, maybe there wasn't a lot of great metalworking technology. So it's hard to make machines out of metal, which means it's hard to make high precision machines, um, which which means it's hard to, to automate a lot of stuff. Even if you made something, it would be hard for, for there to be a market for it. So suppose you invented some great agricultural machine Suppose you were a millwright, you know, who were kind of the the most you know skilled engineers of the of the medieval period. Suppose you were a, a really a genius millwright and you invented some amazing piece of agricultural machinery. Well, who could you sell it to? There wasn't a way to create a market much beyond your town or village, uh, because we didn't have the transportation technology and the communication technology. We didn't have newspapers and railroads and so forth to advertise your product and then take orders and then ship you know, product all over the place. So you didn't have a national market or even a regional market. You had like a very local market. And so um, you know, m- small market sizes because of low connectivity of the human race meant that there was just uh, you, you couldn't there wasn't a lot of opportunity to um, to you know to, to, to make something that had a high investment cost, a high invention cost and then leverage that through a large market because markets were small. If you made some, I mean, in the era before printing, or for that matter, before written language, if you made some great discovery, how could you even tell people about it, right? Word didn't travel until, uh, you know, we got like the Royal Society, which set up and the, the, uh, the what are they called? The Republic of Letters, where, you know, these sort of uh, scientists and other, um, you know, natural philosophers were like, literally writing letters to each other and then the the transactions of the royal society could print those in a in a, a you know a proto journal because we had the printing press and so forth in all of these technologies um and advances and social advancement um too right all of these things uh, so i mean by the way if you wanted to if you if if you did have an invention and you wanted to try to sell it and propagate it when could you create a corporation Corporate the corporate form. If you wanted to raise investment from a lot of investors, the corporate form was not common until like the 19th century. So I mean, it's a long. It's it has a complicated history, but like um, certainly there were some. There were some uh, by the seven. There were significant corporations by the 17th century, um, but it was it was difficult to get a corporation for a long time. For a lot of that history, it required like an act of parliament or or something, right? So it wasn't until the 19th century that you could form a corporation by right. Um, just by filing some papers like we're kind of used to doing today. Anyway, I'm, I've gotten deep into this, but basically all of this, every time we come up with some fundamental advance like writing or printing or the internet or, uh, you know, better transportation or um, corporate, you know, corporate law or uh, machine tools or metalworking or the scientific method, you know, or anything like that, these things contribute to make all of progress faster. So you can think of whenever we come up with some fundamental advance like that, that makes everything faster or that specifically makes um, progress, you know, R&D faster, that 
increments the exponent at which we are making exponential progress. That is the flywheel in the sense that there's inertia because it's difficult to get the flywheel going. What about the flywheel going on itself after it's been brought to a certain speed? So is, is there also is that also part of the metaphor? I mean, yeah, in the sense that society all it too has a certain momentum. And even today in the, you know, even in the late 20th and into the 21st century, in a world where we are, many people are very um, skeptical of the very idea of progress and very fearful and, you know, doubtful of it. A lot of progress just goes forward because there's so much social momentum behind it, because there is a university system and there are research labs and there are venture capitalists and there, you know, and there's a, a market and there are engineers and inventors and, you know, and so forth, right? Um, because there are all of those things, all those institutions, formal and informal, uh, progress continues. So I read that you've recently been convinced that there is, in fact, a great stagnation in growth. Perhaps you could uh, explain what that is and then explain how that might fit into the to the flywheel metaphor. Is, is the flywheel, so to speak, slowing down? Certainly. So uh, again, you know, a flywheel has a lot of momentum, but it's not unstoppable. Um, if you leave it alone, it might slow down a, a little bit just from friction. And of course, if you actively begin to resist it, it will start to slow down, even if imperceptibly at first. Um, so yes, uh, in terms of technological stagnation, this is something that people have been talking about, at least since the 2010s. You know, Peter Thiel is one of the earliest to start talking about it. Tyler Cowen wrote a book, The Great Stagnation, which I think came out in 2011. Um, so pretty early. In uh, 2015 or so, Robert Gordon came out with this book, uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, where he um, argued that you know America, growth in the U.S. had slowed down over the last you know 50 to 75 years. And so I started out uh, my investigation of progress not even really knowing much about this hypothesis. When I first heard about it, I was somewhat skeptical. And eventually, just through studying the history of progress, I came around to uh, to agreeing that there has been a slowdown in at least economic growth over the la- and technological uh, progress over the last uh, yeah fifty years or so. Uh, this is not to say anything necessarily about scientific progress. I'm really talking about um, progress as manifested in the economy, so technology and, and and industrial progress. This is also not a prediction for the future. I'm not saying that stagnation is any kind of inevitable, um, nor is it a diagnosis of the cause. It's just sort of looking at certain symptoms that we can see over historically in the rearview mirror over the last 50 years. And I think the simple, so, you know, you can look at uh, metrics like um, GDP growth or TFP growth, TFP being something called total factor productivity, which is kind of a, a metric that economists generally use to, um, to have an estimate of technological uh, progress manifested in the economy. You can look at those numbers and those things certainly tell the story they have slowed down. You can look at it more qualitatively as well. So, uh, you know, one reason why people are often skeptical of this um, idea of a slowdown is because they look back at the last 50 years and they see a remarkable amount of progress. Computers and the internet have, you know, have, have progressed extremely fast over the last 50, 75 years. Plus, you know, we've gotten, it was just under 50 years ago that we got, for instance, recombinant DNA. And so all of genetic engineering, you know, has from, from uh, you know, synthetic insulin all the way up to mRNA vaccines has, you know, has, has kind of taken that. So, you know, there have been one or two major fundamental revolutions, technological revolutions in the last 50 years. Um, but look back at the period from, say, um, uh, the 50-year period from, say, 1870 to 1920, 
Um, so roughly the 50-year period ending about 100 years ago. Well, that period also had a revolution in information and communications uh, because it saw the invention of the telephone and radio. That period also had a revolution in biology called the germ theory and the beginnings of its implementation in public health and, uh, and very significant declines in mortality from infectious disease as we got better water sanitation and new vaccines and so forth. And then on top of that, it had a revolution in energy with the development of the electricity, uh, the, the, the electrical industry, uh, right? Generators and motors and electric lights and so forth. It had another revolution in, in energy with the invention of the, and, and deployment of the internal combustion engine, which led to a revolution in transportation with the invention of the, of the automobile and the airplane. And then it had a revolution in applied chemistry, which gave us things like uh, so the synthetic materials like the first plastics, such as Bakelite, and the first uh, uh, synthetic fertilizer um, through the Haber-Bosch process. So all the types of progress that we've had in the last 50 years were going on in that period. And then we also got progress in energy, manufacturing, transportation, uh, and, and, and construction. And so, um, you know, the recent developments just don't stack up. You can argue that the internet is, you know, freaking amazing, and it totally is. And I don't want to dismiss or downplay it as some people do. You can argue that it's at least as big, maybe bigger than telephone and radio combined, but I think it's hard to argue that it's bigger than telephone, radio, electricity, internal combustion, oil, the automobile, the airplane, you know, plastic and fertilizer, right? It's just, there's just too many things that stack up. It, the argument becomes untenable at, at a certain point. So yes, I think there was more progress in the 1870 to 1920 period than in the 1970 to 2020 period. And I, I, I yeah, so I, I, I think you can see that. Now, to be clear, there was more progress 1970 to 2020 than at any 50 year period before the industrial revolution, right? Stagnation doesn't mean zero progress. It just means a relative slowdown to what came before. Yeah, it makes sense. You um, you mentioned the importance of the Industrial Revolution when talking about the history of, of progress. So here we're talking about one very large factor uh, that, that has a lot of explanatory power when we're talking about um, historical progress. Does it make sense to look for the main cause of progress, whether that be population size or energy use or ideas or intelligence, um, is that something you, you're you're looking into or uh, that you're interested in? When I uh, got interested in progress and decided to start a blog about it, I called it the roots of progress. And that was for a reason. I wanted to find and understand that ultimately the deepest causes of progress. I knew that the way to get there was to start by understanding things at the object level and to build up to a bigger and deeper understanding, right? Not to sort of to try to jump to grand theories right away. And that's why I've spent a lot of time way down in the weeds of the history of progress. Um, before you can even explain progress, you have to sort of know what is there to be explained. And I think even that is not part of a basic education today. Um, as it should be. That's a separate topic. Uh, so yes, I am interested. Does it make sense to talk about the one cause? I think if you want a very full, rich, thorough understanding of progress, you want to understand all the different causes that operate at different levels, and you want to understand what levels they operate at and, and what the relationship between all of them is. And yes, I think some of them are more fundamental than others. Um, but I think if you only knew about one cause, no matter which one it was, you would have a, an impoverished picture of you know the full story, right? That makes sense. I was thinking whether we could zoom in on one factor that perhaps explains 70 or 80% of the progress we're seeing. Do you think that's the case? 
again, it, it matters a lot what level you're talking about. So at a certain level, what happened with the Industrial Revolution and the whole Industrial Age is just the high-level pattern that I was talking about that applies to all of human history, which is that progress compounds. What's interesting about the Industrial Revolution is that it was something of an inflection point. And I think there are a few things that you can see, you know, that that kind of, you know, why why was it an interesting inflection point? Why did it why did why, why did it sort of kick us into a new mode of production? You can understand that on a few levels. I think, you know, one important level to understand it on is um, sort of the the fundamental economic importance of energy and manufacturing. That's really the that's really where that, that's what the industrial revolution was about. It was a it was mostly about energy and manufacturing, right? And then I think the other thing, the other very important lens on it is that I do believe the industrial revolution was ultimately a product of the Enlightenment, and that means it was a product of certain ideas, uh, ultimately philosophical ideas, ways of looking at the world, ways of thinking, and, and ultimately you know political structures as well. I think those are probably the two most important ways to see it. So we have we've talked about progress, especially technological progress, and we at the Future of Life Institute we're very interested in the relationship between technological progress and risk. So, do do you have a sense of of whether we have a good model of how technological progress goes together with risk? I think there's a lot we can say about it. I don't think we have. I mean, you say a good model. I don't think we have very good models. I certainly, I haven't really looked for it, but I haven't seen anything that an economist would call a model, like a formal mathematical model or anything, um, you know, like we like we do have for economic growth itself, right? Um, we have some pretty good models of economic growth, not perfect. There's things they don't, ex- they can't explain everything, but they can explain a lot. I haven't seen even an attempt at that with risk. Um, it would be very interesting to to try to do. I think from looking at the history of progress and risk, we can, you know, say a few high-level things. I think it's certainly true that that progress overall um, decreases at least day-to-day risk or even year-to-year risk for individuals. Um, And you can see that just in mortality rates. So the long-term decline of mortality rates is one of the big stories of progress. Again, we don't have um, we don't have very good mortality figures that go back much more than a century or two. But just from the last, you know, at least century and a half, two centuries or so, um, in some places, I think in Sweden they go back to mid 1700s. So maybe we got up to about 300 years or so. You can see very long term, you know, very consistent declines in mortality. A lot of that was from infectious disease, but not all of it. Um, some of it is from uh, accidents. Some of it is from violence, you know, and so forth. Now, I think you could make an argument that you know advanced technology increases a certain sort of tail risk, um, that maybe our day-to-day risk gets uh, lower, uh, but there's an increased risk of some you know massive blow-up. Certainly, uh, you know when you look at the history of war, you know it's a little hard to tell. Like maybe war is getting sort of less destructive overall, or maybe it's we just having more infrequent wars that are like exponentially bigger, you know, and you could say the, a similar thing about, um, about other kinds of catastrophes. I'm not sure whether that is correct overall, but it's an argument that you could certainly make and has some plausibility to it. Do you think we would have trouble developing a formal model of the relationship between risk and progress? Because risk is perhaps very difficult to measure. 
I'm not an expert in creating such models. I read I read academic papers that have those models in them, but if I were to try to create one, I would be uh, very much a novice. But I would imagine that where you might start is with the data that we do have on mortality statistics, right? That's that's sort of the most straightforward. Uh, probably, you know, it's probably where you're going to find the best data. It's the most obvious thing. Death statistics are sort of the are going to be the most accurate, the hardest to fake. That's probably where I would start. Can you can you model mortality rates and maybe model it in different you know times and places and for different demographics and for different causes? And um, how would that fit different models? There's perhaps an, an increase in large scale risks uh, from from war you mentioned. Do you think that also goes for risks such as pandemics or nuclear war? Certainly, there was no risk of nuclear war before nuclear weapons existed, and now there is. So, like that has obviously increased. Pandemics, yeah, the risk of that has probably increased. Um, one because we're just a much more connected society, and two because uh, you know we have like bio research now, um, which could which could accidentally create or sometimes deliberately create, um, you know. Uh, lethal pathogens. So, um, I mean, at the same time, we have a lot of, um, we also have a lot of technology to to defeat pandemics. There has been nothing as bad as, you know, the 1918 flu, even though the world is much more connected, right? I mean, COVID was not as bad as the, as the 1918 flu, even though the world is much more connected now. And, you know, that's for a lot of reasons, right? So on the one hand, like with, you know, airplanes and, and, and all, and everything like, the, the the disease can spread a lot faster, but with the internet, information about the disease can spread a lot faster, and the science of the disease can progress a lot faster. And we can sequence the DNA of the virus or the RNA of the virus, and we can instantly publish that. And we can even track the virus around the world by sequencing, uh, you know, genes from its 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 genetic material from different uh, victims. And we can create a vaccine, you know, right away. I mean, in the, so, you know, here's the thing. In the 1918 flu, it wasn't just the flu. It was uh, what often killed you was not the influenza, but it was the subsequent bacterial pneumonia that you would get once you were, your system was weakened from the pneumonia. Today, we have antibiotics, right? We, could, we would be much less susceptible to uh, an influenza pneumonia combination like that. And today we have mRNA vaccines, and perhaps in the future we will have broad-spectrum antivirals that are as effective against you know a broad class of, uh, of viruses as our current antibiotics are effective against you know many different bacteria. Um, and maybe we'll have uh, you know far UVC light sanitizing the atmosphere at least indoors, um, so that these things don't spread so much indoors. And maybe you know, well, there's all sorts of things. Maybe we'll have wastewater monitoring so that we can detect these things much faster, right? So I suspect that what happens is that we go through peaks of vulnerability. Um, so vulnerability ramps up as maybe technology creates risk. And then it ramps back down again as more technology decreases the risk. You see this with, for instance, um, uh, you know, car accidents and road deaths. The the road deaths, um, as a, even in absolute numbers, or even as a you know, or or per per capita, uh, in the U.S., they they ramped up as more people were driving, and then they peaked in the middle of the twentieth century, and then they've been coming down um, ever since. Um, even even in absolute numbers, uh, road deaths are on a long term decline. Even as the population grows and as vehicle miles traveled grows even faster, 
you know, that's probably the high level thing I would um, I would look at. And I think if you just think about general existential risk, I think, you know, most people who think deeply about this would probably say, yeah, in the future, we are going to be much less vulnerable. And in fact, perhaps now is a uniquely vulnerable time, right? So maybe we're somewhere near the peak of that risk curve. If we look historically, can we say anything in general about how the pace of development of a given technology has an impact on the safety of that technology? I don't know if the pace of development per se is the best thing to look at. One of the things that jumps out to me the most is that some of the worst risks are the ones where we just literally didn't have the knowledge to even anticipate them. An example that comes to mind is x-rays. So when x-rays were discovered, people had no idea they were harmful. And they would x-ray their hands. You know, people would go get an x-ray of their own bodies as like a novelty at parties for fun, you know, with like no shielding and um, X-ray technicians, actually, when they were setting up a machine to to make sure it was working properly, they would do an X-ray of their hand, you know. And then a lot of these guys ended up getting severe damage um, to their hands. Some of them had to have their hands amputated and, and so forth. It was, it was quite common. So this was, uh, you know, and I mean, people died from experimenting with with this stuff. And, you know, you think about it, this, ra- you know, this radiation phenomenon, like, you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't feel it, you can't detect it in almost any way. It's this like ghostly ethereal thing that seems to have like very little contact with like the material world. How could it possibly hurt you, right? Like nobody could, could really anticipate that. So that's the kind of thing, you know, just like it's the unknown unknowns that are really the worst. What are some other, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of thinking about this in real time because I haven't, I haven't analyzed this this question. So I'm just trying to pull up some relevant examples and think about them, right? I mean, automobiles are a good example, right? So like early automobiles were pretty dangerous. They were slightly less dangerous in that they didn't they didn't go as fast and people weren't going as fast on the road and the roads weren't paved so that you couldn't even, you know, go very fast. But, you know, they didn't have there was a, they were missing most safety features, right? I mean, they had brakes and they had steering, obviously. But like short of that, <laughs> You know, they didn't have seat belts. They may, I can't remember if they had horns, maybe the not standard. They didn't have lights to signal, brake lights, turn signals, that kind of thing. We didn't have stoplights and, you know, uh, you know, like traffic uh, direction, that kind of thing. So um, there was all, and of course, anybody and everybody would walk in the streets and horses and children and whatever, right? There was no, there was no separation. So um, what made automobiles dangerous? I mean, part of it was, the automobiles were, you know, began to be placed in the hands of like everybody. Um, so contrast, at least with the railroads, you know, you had a trained professional running a, a locomotive, you know, but with automobiles, it started to be like, yeah, anybody who can buy one can drive one. Um, and of course, again, we didn't have driver's ed, we didn't have driver's licenses, etc. Um, there was this sort of widespread availability and economic incentive for lots of people to get one. Another thing I think about around the same era, a little earlier, is um, the the patent medicine industry. So around the very late 19th century into the early 20th, uh, the medical industry, like the drug industry, was just absolutely full of shams and fraud. And there's a lot of stuff that was, you know, at best, har- at best, completely ineffective and often actually quite harmful. Some of it containing large amounts of alcohol or even, you know, toxic stuff. And I think a significant part of what drove that was a combination of 
a lot of people really, really wanted solutions to their medical problems. And we literally didn't have any. Like the drug, actually working drugs had not yet been discovered. And so people grasped at anything they could find. They were willing to take something that was completely ineffective because literally nobody was offering them anything that was effective. Um, and so, you know, there are various reasons why, um, how that problem got solved. Part of the way it got solved was like, we clamped down on false advertising and on, you know, true demanded truth in labeling and, you know, that kind of thing. And just, you know, you know, word, word spread. But part of what actually happened also was that we discovered actually working drugs, you know, and then people could take those instead. So those are a few things kind of off the top of my head, a, a few lessons that we might be able to draw from a few case studies. But it's, again, it's not obvious to me that sort of pace of development is a highly meaningful variable or something, or, or, or like a highly correlated one. But I just, I just haven't thought about it that deeply in terms of kind of looking at the case studies or, or really analyzed it. So. You've been working a bit on a philosophy of safety. At least you have a post on this. And one of your main points here is to say that safety is actually part of progress, uh, at least historically speaking. So perhaps you could tell us about that. I think it's a mistake to think of safety and progress as something that are sort of opposed to each other. Again, come back to drugs, right? Drugs now are much you know, the drugs on the market are much, much safer than they used to be. Part of the reason for that is that we do clinical trials and we have a very careful, you know, testing regime. Um, and then after we do the trials to make sure a new chemical is, uh, is safe and effective, um, we also have uh, very careful manufacturing processes to make sure that as we manufacture the drug, we're actually making the thing that we think we're making and it's not getting contaminated, you know, with, with dangerous things and so forth. All of that adds overhead, and surely more drugs would be released onto the market if we didn't, you know, test them so carefully before we released them. Right. But I think it would be a little ridiculous to claim that the d introduction of clinical trials was something that was opposed to progress or that, you know, har harmed progress in the pharmaceutical industry. It was something that contributed to progress in the pharmaceutical industry because we don't just want any old drugs flooding the market, right? We actually want safe, effective drugs. You know, when you think about progress, progress is ultimately getting us more of what we want as human beings. And what we want is, is safe, effective drugs, not random, you know, dangerous drugs. And so the introduction of clinical trials, even if it decreased the number of new drugs or increased the cost of getting them out, if it's a good trade-off, Right. If it's cost effective, if it's a cost effective safety measure, then it actually buys us something that we want for a cost we're willing to pay. And that's progress. That's what I mean when I say that, you know, and again, I mean, automobiles are surely more expensive than they would be if they didn't have any of the safety features that they have. But that doesn't mean that the introduction of those features was somehow a reversal of progress in the automotive industry. Right. It was a part of progress in automotive industry. Uh, it contributed to that progress. We have better, you know, safer cars are better cars, even if they're a bit more expensive. Again, as long as the cost uh, benefit trade-off is worth it. Yeah, th there's a case to be made that we are overcautious and we overregulate some areas, perhaps air travel, and we are undercautious and we we underregulate other areas, such as maybe biological labs. Do you have any any ideas why we might both? Overregulate and underregulate at the same time in, in different areas. I mean, this phenomenon is very common. I mean, it happens even within, uh, you know, one agency, right? So, like, um, 
Scott Alexander has written a lot about the FDA in the US. And, you know, he points out that the FDA is too strict about some drugs and like not or treatments and not strict enough about others. So it will let through occasionally drugs that, you know, that don't even work super well, like the Alzheimer's one that I can never remember how to pronounce, aducanumab or something like that. Um, and then uh, and then maybe they, they take a long, long time to approve something that maybe should have gotten approved a lot earlier. Overall, Alex Tabarrok makes the argument that they're, that on balance, they're actually way too strict. Um, but in some things, that doesn't mean that, you know, everything they, every decision they make is therefore like too strict, right? Yeah. Why does this happen? I mean, I certainly think visibility is a big part of it. Air safety is very visible. When a plane crashes, it makes the news. Bio lab leaks are not very visible. Most people don't even know that they happen. Terrorism is extremely visible, right? And so we over we overcompensate for like terrorist attacks um, in terms of that security. And then, you know, maybe we undercompensate for lab leaks, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, visibility is a, is, is a big part of it. So part of it has to do with kind of sins of omission versus sins of commission, right? So we set up agencies whose job is to regulate or to provide us with safety. And um, maybe those agencies are structured in a certain way, like a regulatory agency like the FDA or the, the NRC, the Nuclear Commission, is set up to review and approve all you know, new things of a certain type. And, um, and so one problem with that structure is that it creates very one-sided incentives because anything that gets approved and, and turned out to be bad or creates, you know, creates harm, the agency might get blamed for, for badly approving. If it gets approved and it doesn't create harm, mostly nobody notices that they did a good job of approving it. If they fail to approve something that would have created great good, well, also, no, that's also invisible, right? And nobody sees that. So really, you know, so they, so they kind of get no credit for approving good things. Um, they get blamed if they approve bad things, and they don't get blamed if they fail to approve good things. And so you just get all the incentives are towards being too strict. And so you get um, what I described in a recent essay is this kind of regulatory ratchet where um, anytime anything bad happens, the rules get stricter. And that's a pretty much a one-way street. And so you just end up with this morass of, um, of, of regulations. You end up with a regulatory overkill. And I think that's a very common pattern. You write that safety requires defense in depth. What is defense in depth? And perhaps we could take an example where we, where we talk about uh, how it might work. Yeah, sure. I mean, defense in depth just means you have many layers of things. You don't count on any one mechanism as a silver bullet to create safety. A safety is created by attacking the problem from many different angles. So, so you have some sort of redundancy in the in the safety features. So come back to you know come back to automobiles. We have seat belts and anti lock brakes and collapsible steering columns and crumple zones and shatterproof glass. And we have, um, you know, turn signals and brake lights and headlights. And uh, we have, um, you know, traffic systems and we have divided highways and overpasses um, and, and, and underpasses and, and on ramps. Um, and we have traffic lights and stop signs. And we have social mechanisms like um, we have driver's education and driver's licensing. And we have social, you know, stigma campaigns against drunk driving. And, uh, and, you know, and we have airbags and we have all these things. So you just, you, some of them are, are literal in sort of inventions. Um, some of them are inventions to prevent 
accidents. Some make accidents less damaging, like a seatbelt or an airbag. Some of them are um, are in the systems rather than, you know, like the, the, the road system rather than the vehicle itself. Some of them are about the driver. Some of them are social. Some of them are legal. Some of them are moral. Um, so you, you add up all of these things and it's all of them put together that, um, that, that create road safety. That's defense in depth. Uh, another metaphor is the Swiss cheese model where any piece of Swiss cheese is going to have some holes. But if you take a bunch of, you know, uh, a bunch of pieces where the, the holes are not correlated and you stack them up, then there's no one spot where you can penetrate the whole thing, right? Where there's a hole that goes all the way through. And so any, basically, it's a recognition that any safety mechanism is going to be imperfect and incomplete. And so the only way you get anything approaching acceptable safety is to layer, you know, multiple of them, combine multiple of them in a system. Do you think we can predict in advance which technologies might become dangerous so that we can develop these safety features and we can think about defense in depth? Well, sure. I mean, to some extent, there are always unknown unknowns and there's always um, errors in prediction. You know, we can and do very often anticipate risk. It can sometimes be hard to tell, you know, the difference between true risk and, um, you know, people who are just uh, kind of worried about new technology or or, or or opposing it and are looking for arguments. And maybe there isn't even a very fine, a sharp line to be drawn between them. 18, go, go to look at 1820s England, right, or Britain. It was, it's hard to find a more pro-progress time or place. These people erected a statue to James Watt and called him, you know, like a benefactor of the world. And yet at the same time, you look, what was going on? Well, the big development that everybody was talking about and hadn't quite yet happened was railroads. And you get people writing about railroads and saying, these things can never be safe. There's no way. I mean, come on. You're saying, you know, some people were proposing that the locomotives might travel faster than stagecoaches. And you get people saying, come on, there's no way that could possibly be safe. You've got 10 tons of iron barreling down a track at what, 18, 19, 20 miles an hour? Come on, right? <laughs> I mean, this is literally this is literally how people were thinking. And uh, in fact, there was one writer um, who said uh, that, you know, basically hoped that parliament would come to its senses and pass a law limiting uh, locomotives to a speed of eight or nine miles an hour, which obviously was the maximum that could possibly be safe. So there's always these kind of worries, and sometimes they're even correct. And, you know, from a certain angle, were we correct to worry about train wrecks? Absolutely. There were lots of train wrecks. Uh, it was a very real safety issue, and it wasn't hard to see that. But it was also wrong to say that eight or nine miles was like the maximum safe speed, uh, and that we should just limit things to that. And if we had done that, it would have been, you know, very bad for the economic development of the world going forward. So yeah, it's always possible to and and, and by the way, even before uh, you know, even before railroads became a big thing, um, people were starting to recognize some of the um, safety and even the pollution problems. So um, in uh, in 1829, there was a famous contest held called the Rainhill Trials to uh, test a bunch of locomotive engines against each other, try to figure out whether. There was any engine that was ready to actually work a passenger railroad, which none had yet done. And in this uh, contest, they stipulated a couple of things. Um, one thing they stipulated was that, if I'm recalling this correctly, that uh, there had to be pressure valves on the boiler to uh, to make sure that you didn't get a boiler explosion from a, a buildup of too much pressure. And in fact, they'd already started to learn about the human factors. Um, it turns out the engineers... Uh, so the hardest people to convince to, um, 
to to go along with safety measures are like the workers themselves whose lives are in danger. Um, so it turned engineers running these locomotives. Um, they were being run for cargo and like coal mines and stuff like that. And the engineers, you know, if the if the pressure valve would go off, sometimes they would just like hold it down because they didn't believe they basically didn't believe in the pressure valve. The the rules of this contest, if I recall correctly, stipulated that it had to ha- they had to have at least one pressure valve that was out of reach of the engineer so that he couldn't go hold it down. And then the, another thing that they stipulated was that um, the machines basically were not allowed to emit smoke. Um, so either they had to somehow consume their own smoke or they had to, which they all did, they had to burn um, smokeless uh, fuel, um, such as uh, a, a purified form of, of coal known as coke. So in fact, all these engines in the in the contest burned coke because they didn't want to create smoke. Um, and that was a that was actually part of the law. I think when Parliament allowed passed a whatever an act allowing this railroad to get created, they said, "But you're not allowed to create a whole bunch of smoke and soot." So already people were thinking about some of the safety and environmental issues. So I think the reality, you know, and that was 200 years ago. That was in a time that was way way less safety conscious than we are today. And it was in a world where that was just objectively much riskier, where the background risk that everybody faced every day was was much higher. You could catch, you know, cholera or malaria any day and be dead in a week um, at any age, at any time of life, right? No matter how healthy you were. So I think, yeah, people always do anticipate to some extent what some of the risks and problems might be and often try to compensate for them. But how much they do that and what the incentives are and what the the rules are, I mean, that varies over by by time and place. So one of the main points in your philosophy of safety is that getting to safety or getting safe technology does not require sacrificing progress. But you also mentioned a couple of of instances where it might make sense to slow down the progress, uh, technological progress in certain areas in order to, to let safety catch up. Um, for example, when it comes to genetic engineering, how widespread is this phenomena where we might want to slow down in order for safety to, to catch up? And are there perhaps also technologies where we would like to institute an indefinite ban, such as, for example, gain-of-function research? So first off, I mean, when you talk about slowing down, I think it's what's important to the way it's important to conceptualize it is that we are, if we're slowing down progress, we're slowing down one dimension of progress. But if we think about the total package, what we care about is actually, again, so like if we go back to what I said about drugs, right? We're Maybe we're slowing down the rate of introduction of new molecules onto the market. That's one dimension of progress. But we're not slowing down the overall progress of the pharmaceutical industry by introducing clinical trials. And I don't think we slow down the overall progress of uh, the of genetic engineering by pausing, you know, exp- certain types of experiments for eight months until we could create uh, until we could do the Asilomar conference of 1975, where they got together to decide on safety practices. Again, not if you not if you add up the total picture of of what do we actually want to do. Um, that's why, again, I think we have to we have to think about integrating safety into an overall program of progress. It is an integral part. Now, uh, you uh, so then the other question you asked was, are there some technologies that we should ban, such as gain-of-function? I don't consider gain-of-function to be a technology. I consider it to be a research avenue or a, a, ty- is a type of experiment that we run. I'm not an expert on this, but I'm certainly, uh, I am inclined to believe from what I have heard that there are certain types of experiments along these lines that we should not do. The term gain-of-function might not be the best term to describe them. I'm not sure if we have the right term for them. 
I would just say, like, just go uh, listen to the interviews that Kevin Svelt has given on this topic. I think he's very smart and uh, and has very good judgment on this. And and I'm basically willing to sort of go along with whatever he says is best, given given what I've heard from him. And he certainly believes that um, there are certain types of experiments, yeah, where we literally try to make viruses more dangerous um, that we should not do. Actually, even more to the point. One of Esvel's points is that uh, not only do we try to make sort of viruses dangerous or to identify which ones would would uh, potentially create lethal pandemics, but then people are encouraged to publish this and even to make create ranked lists of viruses, you know, by how dangerous would they be, which is just giving putting weapons in the hands of bioterrorists, right, or 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 foreign bioweapons programs for basically no gain. Um, There's a theory that we gain from this because by identifying the pathogens ahead of time, we can be ready for them. But I don't think there's any evidence that we're actually doing that. Certainly, we weren't ready for COVID when it hit. And being ready for it wasn't, you know, or like having knowledge about coronaviruses in particular wasn't what allowed us to combat them. What allowed us to combat them was very rapid response platforms. So the fact that we had invested for decades into mRNA vaccine technology was what allowed us to, right, not to mention all of the underlying more, you know, broad enabling technologies like genetic sequencing and genetic, uh, you know, printing and so forth, right? It was that, it was those general capabilities and that rapid response platform that allowed us to beat COVID, not some foreknowledge of the particular virus that was going to come along. So, um, yeah, I certainly think when there is a relatively delimited or narrow area of research that creates particular... Uh, unacceptable risks, and which is not generating anything like proportional gain. And when when there are other ways to sort of learn the key things that we need to learn, you know, it's not as if we're cutting off a whole area of biological knowledge uh, by by restricting these experiments, then yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't do them. Right. There's um there's some things that are too dangerous to do and that aren't, you know, you, you always have to apply a cost benefit analysis to these things. Just uh, if we're speculating here, do, do you think there are there are technologies that are so difficult to handle or dangerous intrinsically that that we should not go near them, or or because it's it seems a little suspiciously lucky that that all technologies turn out to be controllable by us with enough experience and experimentation and trial and error and so on. Do do you think there are areas of of science or technology where it would be ill advised for us to go? Yeah. So first, I don't think it's luck. I think it's the nature of human problem solving that we can conquer pretty much anything given you know sufficient compounded intelligence and and work and research on the problem. Are there any technologies that might be just too dangerous? I think it depends how broadly or narrowly you're defining technology. There are certain things that we ban or that are, are extremely you know limited. Uh, I don't. Know, I can't. I don't. Know, I don't can name off the top of my head, but right. I mean, there are chemicals that are just too dangerous to be handled, right? And there are certainly there are viruses that you know maybe like smallpox that would be better off if we just just literally destroyed all of them, even the last remaining stores in some you know research facility somewhere, right, etc. And somehow scrubbed the genetic sequence of smallpox off the internet. See, I'd be much more hesitant about that. Well, off the internet, maybe I would. I would be much. I would be very hesitant to destroy it from all of humanity's records. That would be an irretrievable loss of information, right? Um, I don't know. I'd have to hear arguments pro and con there. I'm not. I'm not ready to say we should do that. 
Uh, scrub it off the internet. Yeah, I might be. I might be good with that, right? Classified, dangerous information, that kind of thing. I mean, I also, I'm also partial to. I mean, to go back to Kevin Esfelt, he's got this program called Secure DNA, where the the ultimate goal of the program is to make it impossible for anybody to just print any known dangerous uh, pathogen or you know anything that is like too very similar to uh, to such a pathogen. If you if you define technology very broadly. Like, oh, is artificial intelligence just too dangerous and we should never build it? Or is, you know, genetic engineering too dangerous and we should never build it? I haven't seen any technology at that level where I think, yeah, we just need to cut off this entire branch of the tech tree because the whole thing is too dangerous. I I mean, I wouldn't say that can never, ever happen. And I can prove to you now that it'll never come about, but I haven't seen it yet. And I would, my default assumption for anything at that at that level of generality, would be that we can find good ways to use it. You have an essay in which you sketch out four different perspectives on AI risks, and I, I found this very useful. I, I read this essay as being sort of ordered in, in order of perceived uh, risks. So when you go down the list, as I'm about to go, to go you, you, the, the risk uh, kind of increases. So the the first the first one uh, the first perspective from which we can view AI is that it is software, and as with all software, it has bugs. Uh, but we can we can solve these bugs. Uh, second is that AI is a complex system, and it's it, it can fail in 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 ways that are difficult to predict. Like for example, we saw uh, the financial system do in in two thousand eight. Um, third one is that uh, that AI is a is a, is becoming, or perhaps on the verge of becoming, a, a powerful agent with misaligned interests, and that seems pretty difficult to, to control. And and uh, the the fourth one is that is that AI is is uh, becoming a, a secondary advanced species with, per, and and there it seems almost. <laughs> Yeah, a, a very difficult problem. Um, where, where do you where do you f- fall yourself? Uh, how how do you see AI risk? I think that we are certainly um, it, it will certainly have complex system type failures, and even you know some sort of principal agent problems. I think we've already seen evidence of principal agent problems. For instance, the, in the documented instances of reward hacking, and you you might explain what a principal agent problem is. Sure. The principal agent problem is just that anytime uh, you, the principal, delegate to some agent to do something for you, it's just hard to align your interests. The The agent is ultimately acting in their interest for their goals. And no matter how hard you try, it's hard to get those goals to be your goals. So, you know, think of a company that employs, uh, you know, that employs people. Um, so you have a you have a company you have workers and the company tries to set up a reward structure where they promote people for you know for 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 doing good things and then what you find is in any such system uh, people start to game the system and they start to work for the letter of the reward structure rather than the spirit of it right and so um, if uh, you know so one famous thing that happens in technology companies is, if you're a product manager to get promoted, you have to create and launch a new product, you know, to get promoted beyond a certain level from senior to like super senior or whatever. I don't know. And, uh, and so then what do you find? Well, you find lots of people, uh, you find that the company launches too many products 
And then after launch, those products are not, you know, maintained and and uh, and cared for with as much love, right? And so, like, this is one uh, very plausible hypothesis for why does Google launch so many products, often overlapping with and competing with each other, and then often shut them down some years later, right? Well, one argument is there's internal pressure for this to happen because the PMs want to get promoted, and so they create new products, you know, for their own sake, even though it's even though it's not really what's in the best interest of the company overall. Many, many examples of, you know, I mean, this is just sort of Goodhart's law. Whenever a uh, measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And so if you try to measure, if you, the principal, try to measure what's good for you and set that up as a target for the agent, it ceases to be a good measure. Uh, you know, anyway, um, so these sorts of things happen all the time. And, you know, given that they, they happen, you know, so frequently, I think it would be, you know, it's not at all surprising that we'll get some of this with AI agents, right? So, you know, I believe those things. I am much more skeptical of the, you know, new intelligent species analogy. I'm even more skeptical of the um, clash of civilizations analogy, where you think of it's like, oh, this is like, you know, when Western uh, empires met with less technologically advanced civilizations, or if we had an alien invasion, you know, and they were at another technological level, right? Um, I don't think that analogy really applies at all. Homo sapiens arise evolving in the context of, you know, a mid Neanderthals, like maybe that's a somewhat better analogy, but even that is not perfect. So, um, I'm kind of less, uh, I, I think those analogies are much more speculative. Yeah. And, and for listeners interested in the full argument for why AI might become a, uh, analogous to a separate advanced species that they can go back and listen to the podcast I did with Dan Hendricks uh, in this feed. So we, we have the principal agent problem, as you talked about, and in some sense, companies are quite intelligent. They, they have resources to make sure that the employees of those companies do as, as, the comp- as is in the, in the interest of the company. In the case of AI, we are the principal and, and the agent is the AI. But, but what if the agent grows to become more intelligent than the principal? Will it still be controllable? Uh, like, I certainly see the argument for why, you know, it would be difficult to control. I'm not convinced that we can't find some way to do it. So, I, I mean, I think, I think a number of different futures are open. And um, I can imagine a future in which AI essentially remains a tool. And if that is somehow impossible, I can imagine a future in which AI becomes autonomous, but still coexists peacefully and productively with us. Or, and I would, I mean, possibly, and I would count this as not as good, you know, a future in which we basically get taken care of like pets, which, you know, I mean, any dog or cat has a much better life um, than it, uh, as a human pet than it could ever have on its own, right? I don't know. It's, again, we're getting into like, uh, we're getting into things where all of our conclusions are based on thought experiments and pretty high-level analogies. And I just think we have to be extremely wary about drawing too much of a conclusion from that type of reasoning. Do you think that, that people disagree about AI risk because they anchor on different analogies? So perhaps... So we, we, have, we have two eminent uh, AI scientists, uh, Geoffrey Hinton and, and Jan LeCun. Perhaps Jan LeCun thinks of AI risks in the in the sense of from the perspective of AI as software with bugs, whereas perhaps Geoffrey Hinton thinks of it more in the sense of 
the the advance of a, of a new uh, separate uh, species. Do do you think do you think that that analogies play a large role in the disagreement here? Yeah, I think they do in part because again, that's kind of all we have to go on. I mean, think there are many many reasons for why people disagree. Right? They can be. I mean, they can be engaging in motivated reasoning because they have some prior conclusion they want to protect. They can um, they can just have some fundamental philosophical or psychological difference in temperament as to how optimistic or pessimistic they are. There's like lots of different reasons why. I mean, in an era, in a in a in a in a field and on a question where there is so little to go on, where we have no uh, empirical evidence and no formal, you know, rigorous mathematical models nothing to really base a very firm conclusion on. And all we're doing is speculating. Like it's very easy for people to reach different conclusions and which conclusions they reach are going to be based on things like their, their underlying temperament or their biases or uh, yeah, which analogies they happen to latch onto. Yeah. I, w- I would say we have a little bit more to go on than that. In, in machine learning, you, you can do experiments and, f- and see that, for example, it, it can be difficult to specify a reward in, in, a, in a learning system or that, that you, the model you're developing might be able to, to hack the reward you've given it and so on. So we, we have, we have some, some, something more than, than, than just analogies, I would say. Uh, fair, but not enough to get us to the big conclusions. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And so uh, perhaps we, perhaps we should try to get more uh, empirical data to solve this problem. This leads us into into your uh, essay on solutionism on AI safety. So, what is what is solutionism in general, and and how do, how do you see this applying to the AI safety problem? Uh, solutionism is my you know third way. I I, I tend to hate the discourse around uh, safety and you know uh, other kinds of technological problems because it tends to break down into the complacent optimists versus the defeatist pessimists, right? So on on the one hand, the folks who are so pessimistic that they see no way uh, to solve the problems that they envision or that they identify. And then on the other hand, the folks who are so optimistic to the point of complacency where they, uh, don't even see the problems or they want to dismiss the reality of the problems, claim they don't exist, claim that they're trivial, claim they'll be easy to solve, claim that they're already solved, et cetera, and so forth. And, um, I think problems are often real and the way we make progress is not by denying or dismissing them, but by tackling them and solving them. And um, so in my, in my sort of main essay on solutionism, which I wrote for MIT Technology Review, I gave the example of William Crookes, who in 1898 were, uh, warned the world that we were running out of fertilizer and that if we didn't solve the problem, uh, we were heading towards famine. And um, he was right. The numbers, you know, we were running out, we were, we were relying on natural fertilizer and we were using it up, you know, way faster than any, any processes were replenishing it. And we were going to run out, you know, it was good that he foresaw that, but he didn't, you know, and so you could call him and some people did call him alarmist because he was warning of bad things happening in some quite dire terms, but he didn't do this just to, you know, sell books and get on talk shows, which they didn't even have talk shows back then, but you know, he didn't, and he did sell books, by the way, he turned his speech, he made a speech, uh, to one of the scientific uh, societies and then he turned it into a book, which went through like three editions. So he did sell some books, but that wasn't his purpose. His purpose also, by the way, he did not call for degrowth. He didn't say we need to reduce population or, you know, anything like that. 
he said, we need to invent synthetic fertilizer. And his main purpose was to call on the chemists of the world to uh, come up with a way to synthesize fertilizer and to fix nitrogen. Uh, and in fact, he had the basic idea correct. He said, we need to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere. Uh, and he even had the beginnings of a plan of how to do it. Now, his plan was not the one that ended up getting adopted. He thought we could do it with electricity. And we ended up doing it with, with uh, chemistry. But, uh, you know, it was uh, he had an idea. And so he pointed the way. And indeed, um, within some 20 years or less, chemists did come to the rescue and created the Haber-Bosch process and, the, and, and synthetic fertilizer. And so... Um, so that is solutionism, right? Acknowledge the reality of the problem, fully embrace the reality of the problem, don't deny it or dismiss it, or put on your rose-colored glasses, and then go solve it. And and then we move forward and we solve the problems of progress with more progress. It's it's the last part that might be very difficult. I mean, we, we have some of the uh, people who are working very close to this in, in the top AI companies and in academic departments and nonprofits and so on. Uh, talking about how difficult it is to to solve the uh, AI alignment problem. What is what does solutionism tell us uh, that we didn't already know? In a sense, of of course we have to solve the problem. You could say. So what is what is it that solutionism asks us to to focus on that that's different? Well, look, solutionism is a philosophy, and philosophy only takes you so far. At a certain point, you pass over into technical details, and those have to be answered by the engineers. Um, at the philosophical level, I can't tell you exactly which strategies are most promising or where we should invest resources, right? It's more of a way of like looking at how to frame the problem. I mean, I really think if you look at, I mean, AI is just one example of this. Um, climate change is another example. There's lots of examples. You get a lot of people who are merely har- just harping on the difficulties. And then you get people who don't want to hear the pessimism who are then inclined to reply by denying the existence of the problem. And I think once you're aware of that pattern, you can see it in a lot of the discourse and you can avoid it in your own thinking and in the way that you talk about the problem. And so I think that's the value of having this concept and, and understanding this kind of uh, false dichotomy or this trichotomy. You know, as for what to actually do, again, I mean, I'm not the expert. There are people, there are a lot of different ideas. I think we should pursue all of them um, or anything that anybody thinks is promising and, and, and worth investing in. I mean, I do think that we've been held back for a long time by this will echo something I said a little bit, a little bit earlier, but I'll I'll reinforce it here and I'll cite part of where I got this from was um, Scott Aronson uh, on the he did a, a different podcast the um, AXRP AI X Risk uh, Research Podcast he did a very good interview with them where he pointed out that like any field of science or engineering to make progress needs one of two things it needs either empirical data uh, or it needs uh, like a, a rigorous or like formal uh, mathematical theory. And for decades, AI safety has had neither of those things. And so it's been very difficult to make progress. Now that we have some pretty capable AI models, we finally have the ability at least to get some empirical data. And so actually, now might be the golden age of AI safety. Like, we can finally we can finally do something about it because we can start testing out hypotheses. And so hopefully that will make it easier to actually make some progress. One uh, potential problem there is that AI might be different than other te- than other technologies in that it moves too quickly for us to do this this uh, trial and error and experimentation that that has worked for other technologies such that whenever we get these capable models that, that we have now we are we are uh, close to to even more capable models and we don't have the the years and years of of experimentation that we might have had with say cars for example or, or decades upon decades 
it might be the case that we are now coming around to thinking about uh, technical AI safety as a real problem and that we have the funding and the, the means to experiment and AI safety is becoming a real field. But is it perhaps too late? Like, first off, historically speaking, I think we're extremely early when it comes to thinking about AI safety. Like, I don't know many historical examples of something where people have been so concerned about safety for so long before you had any like real capability at all. And where and where people were researching it and writing papers and creating entire institutes and and everything. Like historically speaking, this feels to me like the most safety conscious that humanity has ever been. So um like I don't know how it could have been earlier. Um, and again, there's there's only so much progress you can make when you have almost nothing to go on. So again, I don't know. I literally don't know if we had just poured even more resources into it even earlier. I don't. I, I'm not convinced that we wouldn't have just spun our wheels harder. Ultimately, I think that safety of this type, especially from you know safety that comes from research and development and from you know things in the lab. I think ultimately, in large part, it's in the hands of the technologists themselves who are on the front lines. They are the ones who are literally, you know, or, or metaphorically standing in front of Pandora's box and holding the keys, right? They're the ones who can decide to open it or not, and and whether to open it in a secure contained facility or not, and et cetera, right? And so uh, I think it's the people who know the most about these systems, who understand them the deepest, and who are closest to the literal concrete day-to-day -day decisions that are being made who are best positioned to make these decisions. I'm not going to tell them what they should be doing. I will tell them that I think they should pay attention and take the issue seriously. Just as if you were a bio-researcher in a lab, I think you should take the biosafety issues very seriously, right? But I'm not going to tell the bio-researcher which pathogens are the ones that require uh, you know, a negative pressure laboratory and which ones require full PPE and which ones require, I don't know what, you know, or all the different mechanisms they use. Right? I mean, I do think we should sort of think about it and take sensible precautions. Um, certainly, I mean, certainly we should think a lot about what are we hooking these systems up to? You know, one thing I would wonder about is sort of like, what's the security plan for GPT having, um, uh, you know, an API access, right, to to various things, right? And it's getting tools now and you can plug it into all sorts of stuff and like, you know, what are people going to do about that? That seems like a thing where, okay, now that I can do something other than just chat with me, you know, that's, that's certainly the kind of thing where we want to think very carefully about like, what are we hooking it up to? Just as we, I mean, as we would think about, you know, if we were going to give an API to anybody, we would think about what can this API do and what might someone do with it, right? But Do you think AI is a normal problem? So do, do you think AI is a problem of the sort that we have faced before and, and solved before? Or do you think AI risk might be, might be different? I mean, my first question is, are there any normal problems? Like, I mean, at what again, at what level? Like, on some level, it's a new, different problem. There are many aspects of it that are new and different. At another level, it's a problem in that it's an aspect of reality that we have to contend with. And that's just like all our previous problems, right? So it just it just completely depends on what level you're talking about. Do you think we can handle uh, AI risk with uh, sort of traditional means? Here I'm thinking, for example, of insurance. So saying that um, AI companies uh, by law must uh, must be insured to a certain extent. So that's if they cause damages, they are liable for those damages. I think that would certainly help if it were defined properly, right? Um, but again, uh, there's no silver bullet, right? You need defense in depth. So any one of these 
when you're when you're looking at a safety mechanism, you don't want to ask whether it will solve everything because nothing will, right? You just want to ask whether it's sort of a good thing to layer on. Proper definition of liability is essential, and having insurance schemes for that liability would help. Um, but nothing, no, neither that nor anything else, will solve the whole problem. What about the resources that we as a as an economy are we, we're dedicating to research into capabilities versus research into safety uh, in 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 the in the field of AI? Should we perhaps and and again here I'm thinking about traditional means. Should we perhaps be subsidizing uh, research into safety because we believe that that uh, too much of uh, resources, too too many resources, are going to uh, AI capabilities? I mean, it depends on who's we, right? And it depends on what the what the proposals are for what we would do with marginal dollars. Like, I don't, I don't immediately know. Within AI companies themselves, I mean, I would like to see safety integrated with the development. Uh, I mean, it makes sense to have some of it be separate. Certainly, it makes sense to have kind of, uh, you know, like a black hat team, right? A team who's not thinking about is not responsible for capabilities who then gets to think about what are the ways this could go wrong and their their whole job is to be the like the the advocate for the other side of of the um of the judgment uh you know but just in general uh are you know are are there high ROI opportunities at the margin that we're missing um like I don't know off the top of my head here's something concrete right say a wealthy philanthropist sponsors a a, a, a a pool of prize money that's used to set up bug bounty programs for for these systems such that anyone finding a security flaw can report that flaw and uh, get money from the from the prize money pool instead of uh, perhaps using that flaw in the system to earn money in some illicit way oh yeah sure that's a good idea i mean we do that for regular software security as well right companies have bug bounties and um that sort of thing certainly helps. Um, you know, much better to set up incentives for people who discover flaws to, you know, white hat report them rather than exploit them. So I've been talking about AI and and how it might be different. Uh, and and my thinking here is that uh, AI is sort of the ultimate general purpose technology. Um, if electricity is general purpose, then intelligence is definitely general purpose. It's it's kind of a, a meta technology that can perhaps create other technologies. Don't you think that this this changes uh, the way we 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 see the trade offs involved? That that we're we're dealing with something here that that might be more powerful than any technology we've faced before. Certainly, I mean we're very often facing something that's more powerful than any technology we've faced before because that's the nature of progress in technology, right? You know, when we created nuclear power, that was the most powerful energy source we had ever found. And when we created internal combustion engines, they were the most powerful engines we'd ever created. And when we created fire, that was the most. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. We generally don't waste a lot of time creating things that aren't going to be more powerful than anything we've ever created. Yeah, no, I think it's certainly true. Um, and I mean, look, this is, you know, this is part of the reason to be worried about it. It's also part of the, the reason to be excited about it. Uh, I think in general, like any powerful new technology is going to be maybe, you know, sort of equal parts exciting and worrying. Um, those things are going to go together because the very nature of sort of power of technology means it can be used for great good and it can also be carelessly or recklessly used or it can be abused and used for evil. Right? That's just that's the case with any new technology. What are you most worried about that we will... Uh, as a species, as humanity, seriously harm ourselves by by uh, using by, by AI, basically, or that we will fail to harness the the full power of AI, fail to use it to to use the technology to its full potential. 
I'm not super worried about either of those in the long run. I think failing to use it to its full potential is much more plausible. Some sort of disaster from AI is likely just because, again, I mean, every every new technology creates the potential for disasters and often creates disasters. Um, we have plane crashes. We have nuclear plant meltdowns. We have, you know, all sorts of things. I expect some disaster at that level from AI, right? But wouldn't a disaster involving AI be more analogous to a nuclear war than a plane crash or a a, a, a nuclear power plant meltdown? I mean, it could be. I mean, you could get things at any level, right? The smaller disasters are more likely and more plausible, uh, but obviously less less impactful. We started uh, by talking about uh, economic growth and uh, the history of economic growth, and now I think we should uh, we should talk about the the future of uh, of economic growth. I, I've um, I have this this uh, this question that's been kind of on my mind for a long time, which is just how long for how long can current economic growth rates continue into the foreseeable future? And what does foreseeable mean? By the time we get anywhere near the point where the growth rates cannot continue, the un- the the world and human life and civilization will be so completely unimaginably transformed that it will be unrecognizable from where we are today. So. You know, that point is beyond the horizon of what we can foresee. But there are some physical limits. And here I'm talking about actual limits in physics, for example, that that we cannot expand beyond Earth uh, faster than the speed of light. Sure, sure. There's only so much matter and energy within our light cone, right? And if you keep growing at even like 3% a year or whatever, you know, let alone if you project forward the, um, the trend that I mentioned towards the beginning where progress actually speeds up over time, <laughs> um, then, uh, yeah, then at some point, maybe you've used it all up. I don't know. It's a little hard to say because, again, it's just it's so far away from where we are right now. There's, I just feel like there's, there's, there's not one but multiple barriers in between here and there, like where things are going to transform so much that we just can say almost nothing about what's beyond them. But, you know, all I know is that it'll just be, again, it'll be a completely unrecognizable world, right? It'll be a world where there's no disease, where death is like completely optional, um, where we can travel anywhere in the universe that it is physically possible to travel, where we can build anything, you know, that it's physically possible to build as fast and as cheaply as it's physically possible to build it, where we've already, you know, created um, all of the, you know, every possible form of art personalized to every possible different taste, where we've can transform our bodies and, exp- and and inhabit, you know, any kind of physical object that it's possible for our consciousness to inhabit, where we've created every sport and game that we can possibly think of and have mastered them and had every kind of competition, where we've uh, you know, where we've solved like literally every problem in the universe left to solve. I just like, I can barely begin to guess at what that world looks like. And I don't think anybody else can either. And if we're just extrapolating current growth rates uh, out into the future, th- that world is perhaps uh, thousands of years away. Just because uh, if, it, if if growth continues to that, uh, but two or 3% per year for thousands of years, we will begin to hit these uh, fundamental physical limits. But what about, as you mentioned, what about if the growth rate is itself speeding up? Here's here's one scenario. This is this is what I what I've called explosion, uh, economic kind of growth explosion. It just means that the growth rates accelerate and we and they reach kind of extreme levels this century. So perhaps we see the the world economy doubling every year, or, or perhaps even every month. 
And then the scenario that you just described uh, begins happening much, uh, much, much at a much more in a much more quick, like uh, much faster than we we might have thought. So perhaps this century, as opposed to uh, thousands of years, how, how plausible is this scenario? And is it if you just take if you just extrapolate from the data we have uh, today, um, is it the conclusion you reach? Yeah, but it's very hard to you know put any kind of numbers on it, right? But yes, uh, I mean, I ha- so I haven't done the math, uh, but certainly if you if you project forward the trends, then you do get some you know significant increase in the rate of growth probably within this century, and maybe that means you hit some sort of ultimate physical limits in centuries rather than in millennia or even sooner. I don't know. Again, I haven't I haven't done all the math. If you, um, I mean, again, if you take the most naive curve fitting. And you you end up fitting like a hyperbolic curve, which goes infinite in finite time, and so like that can't literally happen. It's a failure of the model when we get infinities. It's it's not we're not actually projecting infinite growth, whatever that means. You know, obviously, there's some there's something wrong with the model, right? But maybe what's wrong with the model is just that it doesn't account for hitting physical limits, or um, or maybe there's something else going on. I don't know. So rather than a simple curve fitting exercise, which gets you maybe this sort of hyperbola. Another um, way to do it is to try to fit a series of exponential modes. So Robin Hansen attempted this in a paper some decades ago and found that with a little bit of um, sort of clever uh, model selection and parameter selection, you can kind of fit all of known or estimated uh, economic history going back millions of years to um, a series of three exponential modes with uh, kind of smooth trade-offs or smooth transitions between them. And so, you know, he roughly says, okay, maybe these modes are like hunting, farming, industry, right? And the, so the funny, the, the fun thing about this is like, if you look at the trend, if you look at the relationship between one mode and the next, it turns out that each mode goes like, you know, roughly two orders of magnitude faster, and um, and also the length of time to the next mode arriving is like two orders of magnitude less. And if you extrapolate that out and say, well, what if there's a fourth mode? When will it come and how fast will it go? Then you get that like some fourth mode would arrive sometime in this century, and um, and it would just be it would just be growing unimaginably fast. And the funny thing is, and this is all speculation, of course, and fun with models. But the funny thing is that is not that far off from um, you know, the sort of scenarios that Holden Karnofsky has painted in, in his blog writing where he talks about um, you know, AI automating all of human R&D, essentially, all of science and technology and industrial development and just getting some like insanely fast growth rates. So maybe we're on the cusp of it. Then there's the extinction scenario that perhaps if, if you look at it along the way, it looks a bit like the explosion of growth scenario. Uh, as at least as I as I imagine it, perhaps uh, AI helps us uh, have very fast um, economic growth until we get again uh, speculatively an AI takeover and we go extinct. Um, how, how do you think of, of of that scenario? Nothing's guaranteed. I can't prove that it won't happen. Like obviously, we all hope that it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. Then I, I have another scenario that that I've called a current normal goes on. This is perhaps a bit of a misleading title, but that's that's uh, on purpose. So this scenario involves just uh, we have this this two to three percent growth rate uh, into you know the, for the for this century, and perhaps we we have 
uh, better technology in all sorts of ways, but the world is still recognizable to us now in, in 2100. And we, we still have problems. We aren't living in some sort of uh, unrecognizably great or unrecognizably bad world. Should this be our default scenario or should we perhaps think that we are living in a, in a special time of these growth rates? Because historically, the growth rates we're seeing now are not, uh, are not normal um, if we look at, at it on, on in the grand scheme of things. You know, my first prediction would be that the highest level pattern will continue. And the highest level pattern is increasing growth rates over time. So I wouldn't predict that 3% or we're getting a little less than that growth You know, now would continue in that ballpark forever or you know, for thousands of years. I would predict that the increase in the growth rate would continue and that things will speed up. But again, that is not guaranteed either. Um, you know, your normal, you know, normal world continues scenario is maybe the world uh, uh, where we get the Butlerian Jihad and uh, we go to war against the machines or at least the AI and destroy all of it and uh, and outlaw it and then you know just sort of continue on in our 20th century industrial mode you know for forever. If that's even possible, I mean, I don't know. Like, I sort of doubt it. What about a scenario in which civilization uh, collapse, uh, but in a, in a slow way? So perhaps we can imagine that growth rates decrease and we slowly lose knowledge, we lose capabilities, perhaps population, uh, the populations decline all over the world. And then maybe we, maybe in some thousands of years, we die out in from a from a natural disaster like a, like an asteroid or or, or a volcano or or, or a, a pandemic or or something like this. Yeah, what, what do you think of that? This would be like if you took the great stagnation and extrapolated that and and took the the kind of most worrying extrapolations of the the great stagnation. Yeah, I mean that's possible. Civilizational collapse certainly has happened before. Um, stagnation and regression have happened before. I think we are, I suspect, we are less vulnerable to civilizational collapse than we used to be. And I would like to think that that trend will continue and that we'll continue to get less vulnerable to collapse. But I haven't studied collapse in enough depth to have a real theory there. All right, Jason, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming on. Thanks a lot. It's been a fun conversation.